Darkness at Noon by Arthur Kerstler. Adapted for radio by Simon Scarterfield. A city centre housing block, fourth floor, a small but nicely furnished flat. A man in his late fifties with thinning hair and kind eyes. Very kind. They're closed. He's dreaming that two men are coming in a large black car to arrest him. And desperate to be ready for them, he is trying to get his arm into the sleeve of his dressing gown. It won't go. There's some obstruction. I no longer wish to stand in the way of the party's historic task. Meanwhile, in a large black car, two men in dark suits are coming to arrest him. I confess that I shamelessly befriended agents of capitalist states who are we doing today, then? Oh, it's dark. Hold on. Oh. Rubishaw. Who's that, then? Well, you don't know. Big one, is he? Commissar of the people. Up on that platform at all the big events. He used to be. He always looks so... dependable. What does it say on the charge sheet? Uh, um... Oppositional activities... Conspiring with foreign powers? Yeah, no, it doesn't sound very dependable to me. I urge the courts to hand me the ultimate penalty for my treasure. Oh, listen to this one grovelling. I mean, doesn't that sicken you? Yeah. Good. Have you ever wondered what it would be like to face your own death like that? To, to know for sure that you're going to die? Uh, no, because I'm not anti-revolutionary scum, are you? No. <laughs> then come on. We've got work to do. The man, Nicholas Rubashov, is a revolutionary, one of the old guard. You can see him in photos peering over his pince-nez, just one or two places from the leader, alongside all the parties great and good. That was before he started having the dreams in which he couldn't get his arm into his dressing gown. Oh, so it's today. Is the caretaker there? Shoot this bastard tooth. Citizen Nicholas Samanovich Rubashov, you are under arrest for counter-revolutionary... Put your gun down, comrade. I haven't got any clothes on, let alone a weapon. What's wrong with your mouth? Bad tooth. Get up. Pass me something to wear. Do you want your dressing gown? Here. Thank you. Put it on. My arm went in. I must be awake. Yes, you're awake. And you are under arrest for oppositional activities, conspiring with anti-party elements to impede the... Impede revolutionary progress. Carry on, I'm just getting dressed. Plotting with foreign powers. Uh, Will you need these? Ah, my pants now, yes, I will. Thank you. Only authorised personal possessions allowed. He knows who I am, does he? Uh, I told him. Need some lessons in party history. Ah, oh, this tooth. A small room, again fourth floor. No furniture. A plank bed and a bucket. Citizen Rubashov, isolation cell four hundred four. A window onto a snow-covered yard. Newspaper over a broken pane of glass. The bucket smells. I have 
toothache and I need tobacco. Communication with staff is permitted at mealtimes only. Possessions confiscated on admission party. Membership card, belt. What's this say? Pan's nay. My spectacles. Here's your receipt. I need them back. Breakfast round at six. Stand by the door. The staff canteen of an interrogation centre. Hard chairs. Grey food. I've got history with him, Gletkin, so I'll be working on him. Ivanov is an old comrade of Rubashov's, who, during the revolution, lost his leg and nearly his will to live. He eats soup. I'm curious to meet him. His colleague Gletkin is 20 years younger, shaved head. He eats an apple, which he cuts and cores neatly with a penknife. By all means, but your strong-arm tactics won't work. He's made of different stuff. Everyone's made of the same stuff, and I haven't slept in a week. We get his confession, then make it terminal. Hmm. <clears throat> That's protocol, is it? It's science. Parties established that physical pressure is the fastest method. <laughs> it's all numbers with you people. You need to consider history, too. Rubishov is one of the old guard. He fought for the revolution before number one's time. He plotted to kill number one. Of course he didn't. Well, that's not what matters. What matters is that we have the key for boy to say he did. That's enough to get him terminated. Rubashov is worth far more contrite in front of a camera than in bits on a cell floor. People like him. He has a following. I don't know about you, Ivanov, but I follow the party. Rubashov's train fare to Siberia is an unjustifiable extravagance. I hope I never fall into your hands, Gletkin. At the other end of a long corridor, in a conversation with a prison orderly, Rubashov discovers how much else is considered unjustifiably extravagant. 404, Rubashov? Yes. No meals. Why? Says here, no meals. Also denied him. Cigarettes, pencil and paper, soap, his pince-nez. You can write a letter of complaint. I don't have pencil or paper, as you know. You little shit. Abuse of orderlies is against regulations. So is not standing in the presence of an officer. Are you the man in charge of my case? Not currently, but I'll be speaking to him. When were you going to inform me that I'm on hunger strike? You reported sick. That tooth mustn't get infected. So I starve myself better. Is this some new enlightened method? Any other requests? <clears throat> Pencil and paper. Are they any use without your specs? Pans, nay. No. Then that's where we'll start. Here. Thank you. Ah, oh, you look like your pictures now. <laughs> Do you enjoy this? I thought you'd find it hard to be dictated to. I understand you are more used to giving dictation. I do my own paperwork. A secretary can be a distraction. Intelligence Officer Gletkin is correct. There was a time, two years or so ago, when the old revolutionary had not only a large desk in a handsome building, somewhere in a Western European capital, but also a personal secretary. Beautiful paintings. Yes. Receptions are generally held in the ballroom, there. I see. We'll be using that for the 20th anniversary celebration next month. Mm. There's a library through there, too. Through there are your secretarial staff, and 
This is your office. Yeah. <laughs> it's even south-facing. The party's spoiling me. I'll go soft. I can pull the blinds. No, uh, thank you. I like the light. And this is your office, too. My desk is in here, yes. Or uh, sometimes I'm down the corridor. I look after the library, too. Well, thank you. Uh, I'm sorry, there's been so much to take in. I've forgotten your name. Comrade Gumliova. Of course. And what shall I call you? Comrade Gumliova. Or? Sorry? Since you're my personal secretary, it won't do any harm to be slightly personal. What's your first name? Arlova. Arlova. Well, with your permission, I might call you that. Yes. Comrade. The old revolutionary and the secretary worked together every day. He said little beyond the official memos which he dictated to her, but his thoughts were not always fully on his work. Provided that such assurances are forthcoming... They were on her plump fingers. Then we foresee export figures for nitrate-based fertiliser. On the outline of her cheek against the light from the window. Exceeding our leader's targets. And not at all on what he was Before saying. Before the end of the five-year plan. I'm so sorry, I'm having trouble. Could you speak up for me? Oh, of course. Uh, my apologies. I'm not used to dictating... I think it throws me that you never say anything. What would I say? I don't know. <clears throat> if you like, I could repeat the last word of every phrase you say. Is that what you normally do? No. We could try it. Yes. Let's try it. The recent discovery by scientists... Scientists. Good. In the service of the revolution... Revolution. Well, that was an easy one. Uh, that potash offers greater yields over alternatives... That are nitrate-based. Nitrate-based. One word hyphenated. Excellent. Is borne out by the impressive growth... Growth. ...on our glorious leader's upper lip. You shouldn't say things like that. I don't, usually. Or things like this. Would you care to join me for dinner this evening? All over? You could always type your answer. <laughs> Good. In time, the secretary became something more than a secretary. Sometimes Rubashov would pause in his dictation and take pleasure in simply looking at her. Sometimes he would wake up and take pleasure in looking at her. Good morning, comrade Gumilyova. Happy 20th anniversary of the revolution. Mm. Uh, so how did you sleep? Well, thank you. On these occasions, she would let her eyes rest on him, a pleasure she denied herself at work. What shall we do? Have you brought anything from that library of yours? We could read to each other from Lobachev's outstanding work on agrarian reform. Don't. Or maybe you're feeling mischievous, yeah? And you smuggled out some Babitsky. Please don't. <laughs> I hate that job. Hmm. The undersecretary is the only one who ever comes in there, checking up on what's there and what isn't. I must say, I don't envy you his attentions. You've kept your earrings on. Yes. They don't bother you in bed? No, they don't bother me. You should wear them in the office. I like them. Yes, I like them. <clears throat> You're not taking dictation now. The undersecretary doesn't approve. 
Does he get to tell you what to do? Mostly, but I wish he didn't. Mm. You can always do what you want with me. Pardon? You will always be able to do what you want with me. Again, she looked at him, as if searching for some response. But she herself didn't know what. My brother has been arrested. Over there. Has he? And his wife. I'm sorry to hear that. Where are you going? We have 60 guests on Friday for the anniversary. That's a lot of work. The old revolutionary has no work to do now. He has nothing to do but think about his past and wait for them to come for him, which, after a few long days, they do. They lead him along corridors that look like all the prisons he's ever been locked up in, past the cells for common criminals, into a quiet corridor where they come to a halt outside a door. Ivanov, not eating soup this time, just smoking. He has unscrewed his prosthetic leg and it leans against the wall beside him. You've cheered up. Last time we met, you were in your hospital bed trying to persuade me that every revolutionary had a right to suicide. That was 20 years ago, before I knew what our surgeons are capable of. Fully articulated joints, chrome-plated. I can swim, ride, drive, I can bloody dance if I want. Amazing. You couldn't before. Very good. Cigarette? How's that tooth? Sorry about the anaesthetic situation. Medical supplies are beyond my remit. I don't believe you. So clearly the niceties are over with. You people have arrested me and now you want me shot. Why exactly? I don't want you shot. I want to help you. I want a confession, but you need to be able to tell us why you're here, otherwise it won't be one. I really have no idea. All right, start with this. You say, you people. I assume you mean the party and the masses who stand with it. That should surely include you. If you're drawing a line there, I'll have trouble helping you. The masses aren't standing with you. How could they when you've worked so hard to crush them? They're suffocating underneath you. <sighs> I'm getting sentimental now. This cigarette's gone straight to my head. So, you have reservations about the way the party operates? I do. But that's not going to cut it as a confession, is it? <laughs> no. We were thinking something along these lines. Ivanov hands his old comrade a piece of paper. On it is written Rubashov's name, a lengthy list of his military decorations and distinguished party posts. And then, this sentence. I confess that I plotted with foreign agents to kill the party leader. You said you want to help me. You don't seem to be trying very hard. I don't have a stenographer here. Hadn't you noticed? So your sentimental outburst never happened. No need to thank me. Just give me a statement. You admit to having joined an opposition group, but you left the moment you learned of their sickening plans to assassinate the leader. We both know that I didn't. Oh, I can see we're going to have to take this step by step. I admit your case does pose a problem. 
It's, it's not obvious when the rot started. You have impeccable party credentials. You fought for the revolution from the early days. Rubashov listens to his old comrade review his career, his rejection of his bourgeois family, his struggle against the old regime, his time in exile. Ivanov even pulls out a photo from years ago, the party leader number one himself, smiling broadly under his large moustache, has his arm around Rubashov, who holds a tennis racket. Your oldest friendships are with some of the party's most distinguished comrades. Another photo, a huge man in a sailor's uniform. His mouth, open in laughter, has pulled Rubashov's hat down over his eyes. Vasily Bogrov. Bogrov! Bogrov! Rubashov! My favourite revolutionary! You're alive, you bastard! You can't have been fighting hard enough! Come, help me pull down some statues! I need to find my men! We used to dream of pulling down statues, now we can! Yes. I have to find my units, but can we meet tomorrow? Tomorrow? It's, it's hundreds of miles away. They, they want me at submarine HQ. You said you'd refuse to go back down in one of those things. I did, but they made me commander. <laughs> they want me at a desk. Stranding strategy. <laughs> Planning strategy. Never banging my head on a bastard bulwark again. At a desk? <laughs> you, five years ago, you couldn't read. Oh, thank you, comrade. The party thanks you for teaching me to read. <laughs> Wish me luck! Your loyalty continues, undimmed. In 1933, a fascist dictatorship crushes the party in the very country where victory seemed closest. You are sent there, undercover, to purge and reorganise the ranks. Your contact is a party activist called... Ulrich. Ulrich Heim. Rubashoff remembers Heim clearly. He was the main party man in the town, working clandestinely to bring down the fascist dictator with two dozen activists under his orders. The party arranged a location for the rendezvous and a recognition signal. Uh, these Asian lions are African ones. The boy looked so young he seemed genuinely excited to see the animals. Asian, the only breeding pair in Germany. What's this? My Sunday best jacket. With your work trousers. They're all I've got. You look conspicuous. I'm sorry I haven't slept. And he's been arrested. Sit down. Annie. My wife. Where were you? Well, I haven't slept at home for months. It's too risky. I was at the cinema. One of our people, Anton, is a projectionist there. He lets me sleep in the booth. Free films. Hmm. How old are you, Ulrich? Nineteen. And your wife? Seventeen. Mm. No children, then? First on his way. Um, can I give you my report of our activities? That's not important. The leaflets. Yes. Uh, Fifteen hundred distributed... Listen to me. You composed them. Yes. They contain formulations which are politically unacceptable to the party. And yet we made material available to you. We had to produce our own leaflets. The, the tone of what you sent us was wrong. Lower your voice and breathe slowly. I'm sorry. I'm better than this usually. You say you didn't distribute our literature because you took issue with its content. Yes, it, it was unusable. You know it was. I, I tried handing out those leaflets. The, the first comrade I gave it to saw the big headline about our own... Um, 
broken will to victory and spat at me. Let me quote from your leaflet, first page. We have suffered a catastrophe. Change is needed. That is defeatism. The last party congress stated in a resolution that there has been no defeat, only a strategic retreat. Well, that's rubbish, though. You know it is. If you carry on telling me what I know, we'll have to end our conversation. I'm sorry. The, the party's... It's wrong. And he hasn't retreated, has she? She's been arrested. Half of our people have been killed. Others are jumping out of windows or, or, or deserting. The party cannot be wrong, as you put it. It is the embodiment of history. Walk with me. I have to tell you that you are excluded from the party with immediate effect. Is that why you came? Principally. So what happens to me now? Better not go back to the cinema. Is that a warning? Have a good day, gents. Is Anton going to denounce me? I have nothing more to say. Taxi! I'm not an enemy of the party. You can't denounce me. They'll, they'll kill me. You know they will. Comrade! Comrade! The station, please. Yeah, boy. Comrade, please! Our records show that the boy was arrested by the fascist authorities that same day on a tip-off from a cinema projectionist. He died in detention just a week later. Rubishov's tooth is aching again. You fared rather better. You were held by the dictatorship for two years, under torture, and gave nothing away. It should be a proud moment for an old revolutionary to revisit his achievements on behalf of the party. What did you cling to all that time? My hatred of the fascists. Your love of the party. You must have believed in what you were doing. But these details of Rubishov's past are as sore as his tooth. I remember seeing you up on stage at party events. You looked exhausted. The sensible thing would have been to go to a sanatorium for a month, then take a desk job. But you immediately requested another placement abroad. Were you proud, Rubishov? I took little joy in what I did. If you are not with the party, you are a cancer on the party. But I had joined no opposition group. There was no plot. If you say so. Just a week later, you got your posting. To Belgium this time. What would the secretary have made of the old revolutionary if she had met him at this time? He was harder then. But even then, he had felt uneasy in the corrugated iron hut in the port with the smell of diesel and seaweed. The dozen bearded dockers looking at him expectantly, excited that he had come from the homeland of the revolution to speak to them in person. All right, lads, that's enough. Lurvy was a little man, slightly hunchbacked, who'd fought against the fascist dictator, but been disowned by the party. Simmer down, lads. Thank you, comrade Lurvy. Good morning. Now the enemy dictator was threatening war, and little Lurvy and the dockers in his union had instructions from the party to starve the enemy of oil. I'm here to express our leader's gratitude for the hardship you've been facing in sustaining the boycott of the fascist aggressor. Uh, well, we, we can't blow up the dictator's tanks, but they're, they're bloody useless without oil, aren't they, lads? Thank you, Paul. Sorry, comrade. Carry on. However, 
Our leader's historic drive for industrial progress must advance at all costs. There are greedy capitalist states benefiting from our position, making fat profits from the oil trade we've been refusing. The boycott is an empty romantic gesture which risks damaging the international movement. Five of our leaderships are on their way due to dock here tomorrow or the day after. I hope I've made your revolutionary duty clear. We expect you to implement central party resolutions and if necessary explain the historical context to your less politically developed comrades. <coughs> Well, I, I, I'm sure you know what you're doing with, with, your, with your policy resolutions and whatnot, and, and, and we'll do our bit. The main thing, none of what those fascist bastards needs is, is coming through this port. Yeah. Oil or, or anything else. Isn't that right, boys? Hey, so what's the cargo? Is it beer? Ah, uh, no, it's, it's vodka, isn't it? Vodka! Plates <laughs> are full of caviar! <laughs> <laughs> All right, thank you, lads! Oh, seriously, comrade. What sort of ships are they? It'll affect who goes out on what shift. The ships are tankers. Oil tankers? That's correct. Oh, where for? The leader's five-year plan is reaching a critical moment. And it's our duty to obtain as high a price for the oil as possible. Where's the oil for, Rubashov? The work of building industry in the home of the revolution is the party's absolute priority. They're selling the fascists their oil, aren't they, Lurvy? The speaker's explained his reasons. If our lot don't sell it, then someone else will. That's blackleg talk, that! The technological push needs a firm financial basis. The old world's watching while you lot over there talk about solidarity and discipline and, and then you go and sell them all the all they want. Yeah. It makes me sick! I'm out, Tim. I wouldn't touch this oil if it came straight out to number one's revolutionary todger. Load of nonsense. Our meeting closed, looks like. It's people like you got me into the party, Rubashov. But what you lot are up to is no way to make a revolution. Did anyone ever tell you that Lurvy hanged himself? No. Hmm. After a visit from you, a man recognises that he can only impede party progress and definitively removes himself. Would you regard that as a good thing for the party? I didn't kill him, Ivanov. If it could be proved that your visit led to his death, would that be one of the things you say you found distasteful about your work? Party progress crushes people who might have usefully served it. But still you had joined no opposition group? No. Then... Maybe it was after you were promoted to head of the trade delegation in Belgium. The negotiations you oversee go smoothly. Your conduct is apparently spotless. However, six months into your posting, questions are raised over the conduct of your secretary. It has come to our attention that many of the authors represented have been denounced or unmasked as traitors. At an otherwise uneventful meeting of the Revolutionary Resources Committee, Arlova had faced criticism over her stewardship of the delegation library. Keeping up with central party guidelines was a nearly impossible task. I have found works by Bubitsky, Volkov, Eisenberg, all of whom have been found guilty of vile crimes. Moreover, writers of proven ideological worth are absent from the shells. 
I invite Comrade Goomley over to explain herself. Hollover stood up, smoothed her skirt, and spoke looking down at her hands. I have never intended any harm. She let her eyes rest on Rubishov. I have always followed instructions to the best of my ability. After this, the atmosphere changed. Arlova stopped repeating Rubishov's last words, and he stopped making jokes. And then, on the day of the leader's anniversary... Arlova, Gamelyova. They came for her. Two men in dark suits waited in the doorway for her while she finished typing up the text of Rubishov's speech for later that evening. I won't be a moment. Just one more sentence. She pulled the sheet of paper from the typewriter, folded it carefully, and handed it to Rubishov. There. Thank you. She stood up, smoothed her skirt. I won't be long. I'm sure this can be sorted out. Then let her eyes rest on him, as she rarely did. Of course. And then the two men took her away. You stood at the window, watching them walk to the black car. There were cobbles, and she stumbled once. Then they drove her away, just the glint of her earrings visible through the rear window. An investigation confirms Arlova's guilt, and here is the first sign of oppositional thinking. You are called on to distance yourself from her publicly, but you don't. Not immediately. It is several days before you make a declaration of unconditional loyalty to the party, which clears your name and spells the end for Arlova. I had little choice. You threw young Ulrich to the wolves, pulled the rug out from under Lurvy and betrayed Arlova, all in the name of the party, and yet you've told me that you disapproved of the party. The cause is right. The methods have been wrong. We can't use that, Rubashov. I thought you understood the system better. Listen, go to public trial and tell the world that you've been plotting to sabotage the revolution or that you're a coward driven by craven self-preservation. You'll get 20 years, you'll serve two or three with a clerical position in a camp, then a few years rehabilitation, you'll be back in the ring in five. But I can't put you in front of the cameras if all you're going to do is whinge. We need some contrition. I can't confess to crimes I didn't commit. No, but proof can be found that you did, and there are people who will use that, and then you would be in trouble. Why don't you want me dead if I'm a cancer on the party? Our generation is dying out, Rubashov. There are people breathing down our necks who would see my efforts to help you as sentimental and inefficient. Are you drawing a line between yourself and the party? No, but the party will if I don't come through with something from you. And then you would be in trouble. Just think it over. I have done. <laughs> Take me back to my cell. I'll give you a week. Think about this, Rubashov. As revolutionaries, it's our duty to stay alive. Both of us. The old revolutionary does think about that. He knows that he is unusual in having a choice to stay alive. More usually, a person in detention waits. Maybe for someone, a superior at work, for example, to defend them. But if that person is unwilling 
Ladies and gentlemen. Or is at an important party function. To 20 more years of glorious revolutionary progress. <laughs> then they must simply wait to be shot. Comrade Rubichon. <laughs> Could I have a word? Professor Kiefer, of course. <laughs> Is there somewhere more? Uh, yes, follow me. Oh, can my son join us? By all means. Michael, isn't it? Yes, yes. It's a pleasure to meet you. Excuse me. Come through here. That's better. Welcome to what's left of the library. There are more empty shelves than books. If it's politics or history and more than a year old, it will have been rooted out. We get new instructions every week. New ideas have to be tested. If they prove better than what went before, then the old thinking needs to be replaced. And you're a new thinker, are you, Michael? Well, there's too much to do to waste time on outmoded concepts. What do you make of your father's book? He doesn't trust me to read it. Oh? I've already had to scrub a whole chapter on Babitsky. I think they're going to tear up the whole thing, Rubashov. Twelve years of work, all for an 800-page suicide note. If you write with proper revolutionary consciousness, then the party won't take issue with it. Michael, come here, have a look at this. From the party journal. They took the old volume away, and then this new one came. Here we are, official photo of the 18th Annual Congress. 17th. Was it? Yeah, I had my beard still. So you did. Seventeen. See your dad? Um, oh, yeah. There he is. <laughs> right at the back. All right, don't rub it in. <laughs> and here, front row, Lapko, Gavrilov, number one. Mm -hmm. uh, look, yeah. Krasnova, Dmitrenko, me. Uh, so? Notice anything funny about me? Oh. Your, your left arm's missing. Why would that be? Well, I had it round Babitsky. So, where's Babitsky? That, Michael, is a question you don't ask. Well, but now, let's have a whiskey. Do you think I should try to contact Number One directly about the book? No. You should just have some of this. Uh, Michael, you'll have some too? Uh -huh. <coughs> <laughs> Easy, Michael. This is very... Very good. Mm, better than the stifling air under Number One's vast arse, isn't it? <laughs> Where'd you get it? My secretary has connections. I shouldn't say this while I'm enjoying the fruits of your recklessness, but you worry me sometimes, Rubashov. Relax. I'm careful when it counts. I'll be in the photo for a while yet. You should know, Michael, this isn't the revolution your father and I fought for. This can't go on. A church can't last if the congregation hates all the saints. Promise me you'll hold on. Wait for the hour to come. Do you promise me that? I don't know what you mean. <laughs> then you're safe. Before we go, I want a word with your secretary. Can she get hold of any more of this? She's been ill, sadly. She'll be back soon enough. Gentlemen, we should rejoin the others. They'll be expecting my speech. <laughs> Rubashov never saw his friend Kiefer again. Not many people did. And Michael wasn't safe. Around the time of Rubashov's own detention, he was arrested, taken to an interrogation facility, primed with the answers to certain questions. 
and then told to shuffle round a snow-strewn exercise yard and strike up conversation with the old revolutionary with the kind eyes and the pince-nez. When was the last time you slept with a woman? The young man's time with the secret police has left his face altered. Rubishov doesn't recognize him. Mine was just the other week. Thighs like a racehorse. Leave me alone. See the chap with the white beard? That's Bagrov. Bagrov? Can't be. It is. One of the old guard. He didn't just jump on the revolutionary bandwagon. He helped build the thing. And look at him now. Vasily. You, you know him? We were exiled together. He couldn't read or write. He could barely hold a pencil in his big fist. I taught him. We laid plans for the revolution together. He's not laying many plans now. Word is, this is his last fresh air. How do you know? It's what they're saying. Rubishov is used to his old comrades disappearing. One by one, they had found themselves on the wrong side of some new party orthodoxy and vanished. But he isn't used to them being dragged, bruised, and barely recognizable past his cell door, where the guards stop, almost as if by design, to adjust their grip on his huge shoulders. I'm here, Vasily. I'm here! Nostalgia is a bourgeois indulgence damaging to the revolution. But once he's seen Bogrov's broken face through the spy hole in his cell door, Rubashov can't help indulging. And he has further reprehensible thoughts, because it is reprehensible for an important party official to wonder what the last words of his secretary may have been. It can have no importance, no utility. And yet, she said some remarkable things when she was alive, in that sleepy voice of hers. You will always be able to do what you want with me. Rubishov. Are you ill, Rubishov? Oh. <clears throat> Give me my dressing gown. It's not prison, is you? Drink? Have they arrested you too? No. I wanted to talk. Move over. I need to sit down. I thought you could dance the can-can with that leg. It aches sometimes. How's your tooth? What do you want? I told you. Talk. Get out. Why? I had thought you were acting in good faith. And now? That stooge of yours in the exercise yard, then the whole Bagroff spectacle. Now here you are on cue with a flask of brandy and a warm word. We fall into each other's arms, reminisce for a bit. I sign a statement and then nod off, and you tiptoe out to save your career. It's whiskey. Swig? I can't throw you out, so have the decency to go. Well, I want some. You're going to give me five minutes. Bogrov was tortured and shot, correct? Pointless waste, and if you tell anyone I said so, I'm dead. How's that for good faith? And that whole scene with your old colleague in the corridor was Gletkin's cheap staging, not mine. 
He's a different generation to us, Neanderthal. He's used to dealing with peasants. I'd never have made the mistake. Last thing I want from you is the sort of moral sentimentality you're clearly flirting with. I need you thinking logically. You didn't hear Bugruff moaning. Not him. But I hear plenty of others. So? You're a Neanderthal like Glickin. There's no difference. Self-pity, sympathy, despair. For people like us trying to shape history, that Sunday school stuff is filth. It's decadent indulgence. You know the stakes we're playing for, so don't come to me with Bugroff's whimpering. Or your lovely plump secretary disappearing. The individual has to count for something. Only if they're useful. Lovey, Ulrich, they weren't useful anymore. The individual can't be sacrosanct. A battalion commander has to be able to sacrifice three men to save 3,000. That's basic logic. That's war. Different rules apply. We are a war. Have been since the invention of the steam engine. Things don't get done without sacrifices being made. All right, the individual can't be allowed to stand in the way. But look where your logic has got us. Where? Here. This cell and the hundreds of thousands like it. Your logic says that to release our people from the shackles of capitalist exploitation, we should put 10 million of them to forced labor, let 5 million starve, or just shoot them. We're flogging a groaning population towards some theoretical future happiness they'll never see. Yes! Has history ever seen anything so marvellous? This is the world's most exciting experiment. We surgically remove a few hundred thousand and the remaining millions are stronger for it. Come on, Rubashov, this is basic, you know this. You've wielded the scalpel yourself. It's almost light. Have a sip of whiskey. Tastes good, doesn't it? Get some sleep. Come and see me tomorrow. And give me something I can use. I'll think about it. You saved my life after I lost my leg. Let me return the favour. You're really the one who wants to stay alive, aren't you? <laughs> it's not such a bad idea. It's really not. Bad luck, Glickin. You've lost. You've got a confession? No, but I will have tomorrow, despite your bugrov antics. Any spineless... So you can back off. No, he's just not a machine. You're a bloody idiot. You should be shot before him. Ubershoff is writing. He writes in the firm hand of a man who has decided that honour lies in being of service, that he is ready to paint himself as black as pitch so that the party might shine like gold. God! And so that he might live. God! Ivanov, he knows, will be both grateful and relieved. This is for your superior. What's he say? Why would I tell you? All information is state information. The undersigned, N.S. Rubashov, former member of the Central Committee of the Party and Commissar of the Blah, Commander of the Revolutionary, Blah, Blah. That's you, is it? Yes. 
wishes to publicly renounce his oppositional attitude. All right. I'll make sure this gets seen. The old revolutionary lies down. He wishes to be useful and to live. But on a plank bed in an isolation cell, it is hard to find useful things to do beyond merely living. And he falls asleep. You'll get it right in the eyes where you're going. You've been asked for. Where's my dressing gown? Come on, up. Grab him, will you? I said up. Come on. At the end of her life, the secretary must have made a journey like the old revolutionary makes now. From his cell, along damp corridors, down a staircase, through a heavy door, and so to a row of offices. In each one, a small desk, a hard chair, a man in uniform with neatly starched cuffs, and a very bright light. Sit down, please. In the absence of Comrade Ivanov, I'll be interrogating you. I'd rather be heard by Ivanov. I'm sure you would. You can forget whatever inducements he was offering you. Your offence is a capital one. I suggest you sit. You might be here a while. You can tell me the truth or refuse. Refuse and I carry on questioning you until you do tell me the truth. The truth is that I was never involved in any plot. The truth is what is useful to the party. Then why should I cooperate? Because of your wish to serve the party. May I hear the accusation? It's already on record. Can I hear it? N.S. Rubishov served for four years as commander in the Revolutionary Army, in which time he attempted to recruit comrades to his despicable attempt. We can keep this brief. You plotted to topple the revolutionary government. You negotiated with foreign powers. You deliberately supplied defective materials to revolutionary factories. Finally... A plot to assassinate the leader, which involved Kupting X, assistant manager of the restaurant, from which our revolutionary leader has a cold snack lunch brought to him due to his heavy workload, into poisoning the leader's cold snack lunch. It's co-opting. Who is this X? You've heard the accusation and plead guilty? I'll say this at my trial. I plead guilty to having lent more thought to what's right than to what the party deems useful. I wanted to see the end of the terror, a desire which I recognised to be counter-revolutionary in character, though not intent. But I have nothing to do with these absurd criminal charges. Do you expect me to settle for that? All I expect is to be allowed to prove my loyalty to the party. The only proof you can give is a complete confession. Abject. Shall we begin? Will this take long? That rather depends on you. I'm very tired. I'm not surprised. It's three in the morning. We start with the abuse of your power in the aluminium industry to sabotage the revolutionary aviation efforts. I deny that absolutely. How then do you explain the unsatisfactory efficiency figures? Party directives had the men working so hard they were falling asleep at their benches. You shot whole sections of the workforce. Did your parents give you a watch when you were a child? (laughs) Yes. In the village where I grew up, not one person had a watch. I was 16 before I knew an hour had minutes in it. I've had to learn the importance of time. So's the whole village. It's now got the world's largest steel rail factory in it. When they first started, the workers used to empty the blast furnace and then sleep until the next load was ready, but we started shooting them if they did, and now productivity is approaching required levels. In Manchester and London, it's taken workers 200 years to learn how to work machines efficiently. We don't have that luxury. Your logic is like Ivanov's. Ivanov's logic was useless. He was too sentimental to use it. Was. If 
Stepanov was shot last night, having expressed doubts about the charges against you. Shall we go on? There were the following signs that you were tolerating reactionary activity in an industry pivotal to the revolutionary effort. There was no daylight in the small room. Only a wall of facts and figures that Rubishov can't see around. Shift changes resulted in 20% more man-hours per week, but productivity... Get up! Where's my dressing gown? Come! Every time Rubishov is led back into the room, Gletkin is there, as if he hadn't moved since the last time. It was my job as a diplomat. Twelve of them returned for subsequent functions. They, 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 my, they were my counterparts. Never smiles, never eats, never seems tired. I quote, warm relationship. You're not finished yet. Where's my dressing? No time. Up. Now. At some point in the endless swamp of hours Rubishov spends in the interrogation room, a young man is led in, looking nervous. His face bruised. Do you know this man? Is it X? Do you know this man? He spoke to me in the yard. Before that? Mm, um, I don't know. Help Rubishov. Tell him where you last met. Citizen Rubishov instigated me to poison... No, no, no. That's not what I asked. Where did you last meet him? Uh. After the reception for the 20th anniversary of the revolution at the trade delegation. Oh. That, that was where he instigated me to poison the party leader. Keith's son, Michael. You've been to work on him. I didn't recognise him. So you met at an official function? Uh, yes, yes. In the library. Why in the library? Because citizen Rubishov and my father wanted to talk in secret. Is there anything in particular you remember about the conversation? Uh, Rubishov made me promise that I would wait for the hour. Ah. What hour did he mean? The hour in which the leader of the party would be removed. And when was it that Rubishov attempted to recruit you to the murderous act? Uh, I... It, uh, was there a tete-a-tete -tete subsequently? Uh, he, he attempted to recruit me the next day in a subsequent tete-a-tete. -tete. May the defendant ask questions? Of course. <laughs> Michael, you were working with your father at the Institute of Historical Research, weren't you? Uh, I... You may answer. Uh, I was. Then later, when he was arrested, you had to find other work. Yes. In a restaurant. Yes. Which means that when we met, I couldn't have planned to exploit your position as restaurant manager to poison the leader. I... I... You, Rubishov, issued the order for assassination. How it should be carried out was a side issue and could be chosen by the instrument of your plan. Isn't that right, Kiefer? Yes, yes. You may go. <laughs> Why haven't you used torture on me? It's against our penal code. Then why don't you shoot me now? The party has decided you can be useful first. <laughs> so you need a pantomime, Roland. This isn't a pantomime. This is the first time in history that a revolution has won and endured. We are a sixth of the surface of the earth, and we will continue to endure. What makes you think you can stand in the way and not be crushed? Because I'm not ashamed. Others were crushed with your help? Ulrich? I did what I thought was right. Lurvy? He could have lived. Arnova. 
We ask prisoners to write down their last words. You'll be asked the same. Arlova wrote this. Gletkin takes a small piece of paper from his pocket and pushes it across the table. It's not the first time that Rubishov has read the words. <laughs> The evening of the anniversary celebration, Rubishov stood to give his speech in honor of the glorious leader. Ladies and gentlemen. He had the speech ready, the one that Arlova had handed to him when she was arrested. Ladies and gentlemen. He opened it and saw that she had typed some additional words at the bottom of the page. You said you would speak up for me. <laughs> Gletkin, a gifted interrogator, is always impressed at the power of hindsight turned to the service of the revolution. Get him back with us. You've been sick. You need to get up. God! Get a patch of carpet cleaned. The old revolutionary wondered if Arlova had fainted, like him. If she had lost track of time, vomited, and even felt indifferent to her own death. Pulse low, temperature normal. Get him sat down. Is it too late? For her? Yes. But you can still be of use. Sign. Oh, and one more thing. Sometimes I tell people going to trial that posterity will know what they've done and applaud their role. Out of respect for you, Rubishov, I want to be more candid. Let me show you this. Gletkin hands Rubishov a photograph taken at the 17th Party Congress, a group of party dignitaries. On the front row, comrades Latko, Gavrilov... Number one, Krasnova, Dmitrenko. Next to Dmitrenko, a shadow. Not even that. A thickening of the air. A large black car, two men in dark suits. One of them listens to the radio to inspire him to greater deeds of revolutionary fervor. The other one listens because he is secretly... Horrified. I freely confess that for vile motives, craven self-preservation, I betrayed the party. Listen to it, Grover. Covered in the filth of shame and about to die, I see that the party must continue its historic task unhindered by my vile activities. Citizen Rubashov, the people demand one thing of traitors like you, that you'll be shot like rabbit dogs. Yeah. Incredible. Right. Enough of that. You're doing this one. Unfortunately, in the country of the revolution, it is impossible to be secretly horrified. Or secretly anything else. Just me? I'll stay in the car. We'll get off sooner. Oh. Where, where am I going? Uh, it's in the doorway, side the building there. The policeman's feeling of nausea has been noticed by other comrades. This one? Yep. That's the one. When they've been with him, arresting backsliders. In here? That's it. Just, just in there, yeah. Go in. And sending those who doubt into dark doorways. Just go in. Don't worry. Go in, go on. Bloody liability. Do you have any last words for the court? I am nothing unless I am one with the party. 
My will is only that of the party and our leader. You will always be able to do what you want with me. In Darkness at Noon by Arthur Kerstler, Rubashov was played by Matthew Marsh, Arlova was Poppy Miller, Ivanov, Stephen Boxer, and Gretkin was Samuel James. Bogrov was Simon Ladders, Ulrich, Tom Forrester, Lurvie, Charlie Clements, Kiefer, Philip Fox, and Michael was David Sturziker. Other parts were played by members of the cast. Darkness at Noon was adapted by Simon Scarderfield, and the director was Sasha Yevtushenko. Next week's drama is set in a near-future Britain following the collapse of the Information Age. That's The Tunnel, next Sunday at 6pm and midnight, here on BBC Radio 4 Extra. Time for me to depart this dimension for now. Just a reminder that Toby Haydock will be guiding you through the following delights next Saturday. There will, of course, be more from The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy and The Total Perspective Vortex Beckons. And that'll be hotly pursued by a juicy slice of Vincent Price, Prime Ham, in The Price of Fear. I can't resist doing that voice all the time. And The Tale of a Cat and Its Unusual Inheritance. In the meantime, this is me, Nick Briggs, signing off. Bye for now. You are leaving the seventh dimension on BBC Radio 4 Extra. This is this is BBC Radio 4 Extra. Extra. Seven o'clock. Hello, this is Kathy Cluxton. It's the American storytelling phenomenon, the Moth Radio R. Next, David Attenborough reads from J. A. Baker's masterpiece about the natural world. The Peregrine is at eight. As a boy, he would go to sleep at night with his arm around his first guitar. The rock and roll living legend Keith Richards shares stories of his youth and chooses the eight records he'd be stranded with. Desert Island Discs at nine fifteen. Now, boundaries, curfews, hairstyles, fitting in and letting go feature in The Moth Radio R. Seven stories about young adults and the world around them. Hosted by The Moth's Senior Director, Jennifer Hickson.